This is the Vintage Aviation Podcast, where we talk about the fascinating first 60 years of aviation history, and we do it all in support of the upcoming print magazine, Vintage Aviation. Watch for our premier issue Kickstarter campaign running the full month of July 2019, and connect with us through our website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all under the name Vintage Av Mag. And now, let's talk about Vintage Aviation. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm your host, Mark Klepper. I'm located in Warsaw in northern Indiana. Today is June 26, 2019, and this is episode number two. Today's guest will be Dewey Davenport. Dewey flies corporate jets for a living, but he's also a modern-day barnstormer doing rides in fabulous old biplanes. Dewey and I had a great time talking about barnstorming and old biplanes. You can check out his good folk and old times biplane rides operation by going to his website at gobiplanerides.com. And hang on, we'll get to that interview here in just a few minutes. First, though, I wanted to let you know that things are falling into place for the Vintage Aviation Print Magazine, and I'm in the final process of preparing the Kickstarter campaign that will launch here very soon. If you're listening to this after July 1st, 2019, but before the end of July, you should be able to go to kickstarter.com and search for Vintage Aviation and find the campaign that way. I hope you'll seriously consider supporting this unique flight history magazine project. You might already know that my goal with the print magazine is to cover aviation history from 1900 until about 1960 with entertaining and informative stories in combination with great historical images. All aspects of aviation will be covered, so there'll be no shortage of topics. One of the topics that will get ongoing coverage will be the age of the barnstormers. After World War I ended, there were a lot of pilots and a lot of leftover airplanes, so the two got together in the civilian world and some pretty wild things happened. And a lot of everyday people got their first direct exposure to the amazing world of flying machines. In my interview with Dewey, we talk about some of what that life was like, and we talk about the 1929 Travel Air and the 1930 New Standard biplane that he owns. So hey, let's get to it. Here's my interview with Barnstormer Dewey Davenport. Well, welcome, Dewey, to the Vintage Aviation Podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest. Well, thanks for having me. It's great because this is the first guest for uh, the podcast, and uh, I thought you'd be a really good one to have for a variety of reasons, but one especially because you've got a really cool biplane operation with two airplanes and, and rides and, and a whole world that I want to learn more about and you can share with us. So why don't you, right off the bat here, kind of tell us about your operation. Well, I'm the owner and operator of uh, Good Folk and Old Time Biplane Rides uh, here near the Dayton, Ohio area. And uh, I'm operating a 1929 uh, Travel Air 4000 and a 1930 uh, D25 New Standard. And, uh, you know, both of those aircraft were authentic barnstorming aircraft and, um, you know, flew tons of people, you know, in a barnstorming air and done other jobs afterwards. And uh, it's, it's kind of like an honor to have a, a business like this that has uh, actually been, you know, pretty prosperous and done very well at, for the five years that I've had it. I see. Yeah, well, that's great. And it's a kind of a living history thing because these are literally true historic airplanes, and yet people are still able to experience them probably much like they would have, you know, back in the day. Yeah, that's the whole point is, you know, I started in 2013, and I bought a, a, the Travel Air, the 1929 Travel Air, uh, from a, a gentleman out in Iowa, uh, Gary Lust. And Gary, 
had the aircraft for about 11 years and offered rides and, and barnstormed the airplane. Well, you know, as a kid growing up, I, you know, I told my parents that, Hey, I, I love to have my own grass strip and I would love to buy, you know, buy a biplane and offer rides and do what barnstormers did because they kind of live free and, and live a good life. And just having a cool old airplane with a radio engine is something that, you know, I think a lot of us aviators really would like to have, you know, when we grow up is what a lot of people say, but you know, the travel air, I, I started out in 2013. I, um, at that time I, I quit my job and I went out and went to like all the local fly-ins, bloom festivals, uh, even air shows. I started my own, uh, fly-in event called the barnstorming carnival. Wow. Uh, all just to kind of like keep barnstorming alive. You know, I uh -huh. dress up like the Waldo pepper and I'm sure you watched Waldo pepper Yeah. and we live and die by the great Waldo pepper. And, uh -huh. you know, I have some very good friends that I, you know, uh, hang out with, we have antique airplanes. So, you know, a lot of influence from them helping me, um, and it, it really has just been a wonderful experience when you take an airplane like that, I can go to a show and I guarantee you, I get the same reaction that someone 90 years ago gave that pilot. That same mm. reaction is really, it makes you feel so good. Uh -huh, I can imagine. And um, it's, here's an aspect of this, because one of the things I definitely want to talk about in this uh, episode is barnstorming in general and from the historical perspective. And, and one of the things that's really solidified with me uh, in my research on that is that w when the barnstormers were really in their heyday, let's say in the early 20s, and they were traveling around the country and, and getting the opportunity to show off for people and then uh, potentially sell rides, the people were experiencing them almost like they were spacemen today or aliens from another world because aviation was so new and, and, and was not within the popular culture yet. And so what an experience for those people. And then the, the other thing that I find fascinating about that is that nowadays we've gone so far past that and we've got generations that have been raised in the jet age and such. So they're almost re-experiencing this, this very new world to them that's, that's now to us an old world where it was very new in the twenties. So it's just really cool how that all comes together. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's, you explained it very well, you know, new pilots today, they really just, I guess I would say just modern day people, they have no clue what barnstorming was and, mm -hmm. and, you know, how in the heyday they were, they were like gods, they mm -hmm. would show up, you know, people are riding horses and horse and wagons. They never seen an airplane in their life. And you have this barnstormer come in, land in this little town in a, in a field they they were like somebody very special and mm -hmm. there's books um chewing gum belling wire and guts it's about the gates flying circus it even explains like the pilots there was they could break any rule they one gentleman got arrested for like reckless flying well the townspeople went to the police station and like demanded that he gets out of jail because he's like right. this, <laughs> this god flying around uh -huh. yeah well and that's it is kind of like you know aliens and spacecraft showing up you know in the field outside of town 
And uh, which is really cool, though, when you kind of wrap your head around that a little bit more and you can see how the people would re react that way. And then even more so, not only to see this for the first time and to see these guys doing maybe the, the show off stuff that they would do to attract attention in the town, but then to have the opportunity to actually be a passenger to ride with them. That, that just like over the top for these people. And as long as they had the money to be able to afford to do it, what an awesome experience for these people. That's, that's exactly, it was kind of like a status. If you were able to pay for a ride to go fly with a barnstormer, then you could brag about that you're able to be in that airplane and look at the earth from up above. So yeah, that's why they were so popular, so busy. And, you know, it, it really started, the barnstorming started after World War One, and you know the government would sell their old airplanes. They had Jennies, J and four Jennies, and then they had these J J one standards, and those really were the airplanes of choice. And they could buy them so cheap. And then you know in the early twenties, the nineteen twenty, you know here now you got this this pilot, and then he can brag or, or say that he was this ace in the military and mm -hmm. fighter pilot. People would want to fly with him. Well, they just toured the country. You know, a lot of them were individuals going on their own. But then, you know, you get someone like the Gates, they would go as a flying circus, a small group. And they would really, they took the country by storm, to be honest with you. It, it is interesting when you look back at various aspects of aviation from the 20s and 30s at how massive the response from the public was, which is kind of foreign, actually, to us today especially with what we've seen in the last 30 years where in a way it seems like general aviation and and in some aspects of what we call sport aviation have diminished to some extent at least within popular culture um, the general public is further away it seems from you know aviation and yet we see that some of the you know the early air races and then the response that people had in in the rural areas to these barnstormers coming through was just um, a wild response, massive and huge response, and uh, so it's. I'm on one hand, I, I'm excited, you know, to to see what it was like back then, but I'm a little disappointed that today we have such trouble. It seems like getting people to care about the aspects of aviation that I think you and I specifically love, which are are a little different than just regular general aviation. They're the little bit more passionate side of it, which, of course, biplanes and round engines and tail draggers and all that fit right into that. And I think there's still um, a desire within more of the general public for that, but I'm not sure why we're not reaching them as well um, these days. But obviously, you are with your operation. You are reaching these people. Yeah, I, I do pretty well. You know, one thing good for business today is social media. So, you know, I do a lot of social media marketing through Facebook and Instagram and even YouTube. But, you know, the problem is why we don't see the 50,000 people at an, an air show event is, is a couple of reasons, you know, regulation, um, funding, you know, <clears throat> is a big, big issue with air show funding and things like that. But then there's just isn't a lot of activity or barnstormers per se that, that can do what they did back in the twenties and thirties. Uh, you know, I would say there's probably a, a handful of, like actual barnstormers in the country mm -hmm. right now. I, yeah. I would say less than 10. 
but you know back then everything was new daredevil you know sure. loops and rolls were new to everyone uh, you know right. here now everything is kind of you know jets and you know avionics are a lot different everybody wants glass cockpits and you know everyone uses four flight they don't use maps and mm-hmm. and things like that so sure. it's you know we've just kind of changed with the generations that's grown up here and and it is kind of sad just because we really the history is starting to dissipate and leave us and i'm i'm fortunate enough to to know very little about what i do and uh, still share a lot of it with you know thousands of people each year well and i know you do a good job of that i love the way that like you said that you you dress up in the style of the era and <clears throat> you have a great look and you have a, a genuine passion and i'm sure that you know is uh received by the people that you're able to interact with and that's awesome because that's uh that makes you um you know a great uh steward of that history and and you're giving these people an opportunity to maybe ignite a passion if even if it's just for a day you know just that one experience for them that's still great though and uh, and you never know it may ignite um you know a, a passion for actually going out and seeking aviation here real quick though before we get too far beyond that let's talk so you mentioned glass cockpits and such well but you're also a corporate pilot or you're flying jets of some sort and uh, so that's a really interesting contrast um to the fact so it's not that you um are only about older aircraft or the way things used to be you're very much in the modern world as well yeah i i fly for uh, the largest fractional ownership company in the world actually and I'm flying a Bombardier Challenger 350. I'm a co-pilot, and uh, you know I've been there 11 years. But yeah, I, it's it's pretty much the most advanced avionics out there. Uh, there's some newer jets with you know a little bit different avionics packages that are, are different or better nowadays. But you know, I I started out in a J3 Piper Cub when I was in high school, and you know I progressed through flying DC9s. Uh, Falcon 20s and different aircraft, but yeah, now I fly an aircraft that is nothing but glass cockpits, leather seats, and uh, we can fly up at you know flight level four five zero, and you know do you know five hundred and sixty or eighty miles an hour. So it is, uh, you know, aviation. The airplanes kind of fly the same, but you know you study and do different things through your your career. And profession that you can, you know, go and progress with the modern world. But you know, I I like flying also back in the trailing edge of technology. That's what we call it. Sure, there you go. I like that the trailing edge. That's very <laughs> good. Well, and here maybe this is an unfair question. I know how it would be for me, even though I I do love modern aircraft, at least aspects of them, and I I'm a fan of experimental airplanes and and new technologies, but I just have such a passion for the the old way that things were done. And uh, so my my question is, so if, if you had the travel air sitting on the ramp and, and there's the Challenger sitting on the ramp, um, which one are you going to choose? Or is that going to vary by the day? Or it like if you just literally had the choice to go pick one of the two to go fly, which one would it be? It would be the travel air, hands down. I see. Very good. You know, I'm an old school pilot, you know, and, you know, I, I, I fly the Challenger for a job. It pays the bills, but my heart is antiques, general aviation stuff and sure. hands down. Yeah. 
Well, that's what I what's that's what I thought, and that's kind of what I hoped too. <laughs> just and again, yep. I, I don't have anything against the modern stuff, but man, oh man, it's just um, I guess that's the part that that uh, strikes me about um, vintage aviation is there's an element of of passion and a, just a a different kind of experience. It's a much bigger, fuller experience, I think, um, for a variety of reasons. One, the airplanes oftentimes require so much more from you even just to be ready to fly and um, and then they're oftentimes uncomfortable or in open cockpit airplanes they can be a little noisy or you know or it can be chilly if it's cold out and uh, so comfort isn't as uh, um, much in the equation as it is today but even in spite all the of all those things though the experience is actually heightened in my opinion anyway I think you'd agree on that and it's uh, it's just cool and I wish more people would get a chance to experience that and um, and actually be drawn into it that's what I'd like to see is more people drawn into that world well Mark I, I'm telling you from my experience I mean I've been flying 25 years my biplane business for whatever five six years but taking someone on a biplane ride i've had people kiss me hug me cry because of when they were a child and their father or grandfather took them for a biplane ride it brought back a memory uh-huh. that strikes emotions and i've seen this over and over and over again you take that same person and you put them in a 737 and fly them to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. They aren't going to be doing any of that. Right. So yeah. that is what, you know, uh, uh, a caregiver or caretaker of these aircraft, that is what we all experience. And that's really what it is. It's, it's people that are able to, you know, luckily afford the airplanes, but we're able to share it. And then, sharing it to the people that really want to see it and love it. it that's why we keep doing it it's it's something that is we have to continue to do because it's history we can't let it die oh i sure agree with that and while we're talking again about the specifics of your um, your operation <clears throat> let's talk about the the airplanes in a little more detail if we can so one on the travel air so it's a it's a three-seater ultimately um uh, with the two room for two in the front seat, is that right? That's right. It's two passengers, one pilot. So yeah. it's a three-person airplane, and the airplanes, you know, Travel Air started in 1926 by Walter Beach, Clyde Cessna, and Lloyd Stearman, which are very famous designers. And it's pretty amazing it, when you think about it. The three <laughs> of those guys together, it is just stunning. <laughs> it is, and you know, the the airplane was built. You know, after the CAA developed, which is pretty much the FAA now, so it's a certified airplane. They, the design of them on the rudder has a bump on the top of the rudder, and on the A wings, the wings on the, uh, you know, the top wing, it had elephant ear ailerons, so they were called A wings. Uh, okay. My Traveler has B wings, which it doesn't. It has just round wingtips. Well, they call it the Wichita Falker. Because the airplane, when it was designed, it looked like a Falker aircraft, you know, mm-hmm. from World War One. It looked yeah. just like a like a D uh, D seven. D seven. And yeah. uh, you know, so they they come out of the factory. You know, mine came out as uh, uh, a D four thousand, 
and it had, I believe, a Wright J5 engine on it, like a 220, 25 horse radial. Uh-huh. Uh, now I have a Continental W670, which is the same engine that a Steerman, you know, PT17 Steerman would have. Uh-huh. And a lot of travel errors have been converted into that for a number of reasons of, you know, parts and things sure. like that. Easier to get hold, hold to, but, you know, the airplane, I believe the, the wingspan is 33 feet. I, I can carry um, 66 gallons of fuel. I burn about 13 and a half gallons an hour. Um, it's still tubing, fuselage. And then uh, wings are all wood, so it's spruce spars and uh, you know spruce ribs or plywood ribs. And then it's covered. Uh, my airplane has some cotton on it and also some um, sinkinite, like polyester type uh, fabric. Uh-huh. Sure. But uh, you know all the flight controls are taken out of the front because for rides, so you can put the two people in the front. And uh, you know it it. It looks like a Stearman. A lot of people think it's a Stearman, and uh, it's kind of funny, but, uh, you know, Stearman's a little longer aircraft. Travel Air is a little bit more short-coupled, but a Stearman's only a two-person airplane, uh-huh. and that's why the a Travel Air just does so much. It's a much better aircraft. You know, it's antique. It's a real barnstorming airplane, and plus, you can carry two people in the front, so you can share that experience with someone. Yeah, well, and I can see where that's a, a good way to look at it, that there's the opportunity for two people to share the experience, but then also there's just the pure economics of you being able to have two paying passengers on board, and economics has to factor into everything, And uh, which the way that specifically hits me is um, for uh, for the Plane Savers uh, video uh, YouTube series uh, that Mikey McBrien uh, just recently completed the season one for, I did a video on the DC-3 um, for his uh, first segment, and uh, it was a history lesson basically on the DC-3. <clears throat> and the ability, uh, when they widened the fuselage from the DC-2 to the DC-3, and they were able to get three seats across in there, that was a, a real turning point for the airplane because it meant now that the airlines could get enough paying passengers in it to truly make it profitable. And so uh, the economics is an important part of that, and I can see where having the, the two seats up front really does help to make it a sustainable business. But then that cool side thing of it really would be for many people, maybe not even comfortable going alone, being able to go with their friend or their mate or whatever, it just has to heighten the experience for them. Well, it definitely, you know, when I first started, wanted to start my, my biplane business, you know, I said, Oh, I want to get a Stearman. You know, I first biplane I rode in was a Stearman, but then, you know, talking to my friend, uh, Jim Hammond, who's an antiquer and then started doing some research. A Stearman is not a real good barnstorming airplane. And the reason is, is economics. You know, I can go out and do rides and, you know, I can take, you know, the age range that I've flown now is five months old to 94. Wow. <laughs> so you can't take a five-month-old in a Stearman. Sure. It just isn't yeah. possible. Yeah. But I can take a five-month-old in my travel area because yeah. they're going to go with their parent or guardian. Sure. Uh, I've taken paraplegics. I've taken people with severe disabilities like uh, cerebral palsy and things like that. I'm a great to- experience for those people. Wow, that's just awesome. Yeah, it's and what's cool about the travel air that they have a door 
Um, you know, I, I take the door off when I'm giving rides, but it's a very low, you can get in the cockpit a lot easier. I see. So that is one good reason why the travel air is just a superior barnstorming airplane. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. Well, hey, but let's let's take this to a let's uh, put it on steroids because your other airplane <clears throat> is really unique in that it's got room for four people up in the front. <laughs> yes. Well, the the new standard is the king of the barnstorming era, and you know by far, you know, I have a a late model new standard, so it's it's called a D twenty five new standard. Um, it was built in nineteen thirty. June 26th is actually his birthday. Wow. It will be 89 years old. Um, so that airplane, how it, it really came about is you, you've already heard me mention the Gates Flying Circus. So Ivan Gates, the largest flying circus in the world where they flew, you know, a million people or a little less, maybe. They traveled across the country. It took them a few years to travel from um, Long Beach, California, and they base their final base was teeterboro new jersey which is the corporate jet capital of the world mm -hmm. and that's where they base you know their final you know base before they uh filed bankruptcy but ivan gates wanted a four passenger certified airplane and so he went to a guy named charles day charles day is very famous because he was the designer for the j1 standard J-1 Standard was an aircraft that was used by the U.S. government to train pilots in World War I. And in 1915 is when that airplane, or actually 1917, is when the J-1 Standard came out. Well, he went to Charles Day, said, hey, this is what we want to do. And in 1927, they built, it's called a GD-23, which is stood for Gates Day 23. And then in 1928, they built a GD-24. The difference was is engines. So in the okay. 23 was a Hisso, water-cooled V8 Hisso. And then in the 24 was a, a right uh, engine, you know, a radial. And then in 1929, I believe, Charles Day bought Gates out of the business. And that's why it's called a D-25. So that, that's a little history on that. It's, it's a real cool history. But the airplane, they didn't build a lot. I believe around 80. I'm not exactly sure the numbers. And right now there's – I tell people there's eight flying right now. I see. Okay. Okay. And pretty much everyone that owns them are given rides. I mean I, I do know one gentleman just bought one. He's not a ride hauler. He keeps it in a museum, but they fly the airplane, and they do I give see. rides. But uh, – you know, most of them are here on the East Coast. Uh, Rob Locke, he's a barnstormer. He has two of them, and he's been barnstorming for years. I mean, long, long time, and he's he does very well with his business. Everywhere I go, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, I, you know, I flown with uh, Waldo." They call him Waldo. So, and that's Rob's business. Yeah. And uh, you know, Ted Davis, he's up in Madison, Wisconsin. He has one. He's been a big mentor for me. He's helped me a lot and, uh, and different things like that. But he he's built, I believe this is, he's building his third one now, restoring. I see. You know, yep. But that airplane is unique. And I have a very unique one because I'm the only one 
with a continental powered standard. I Everybody see. else is running right J6s, which are 235 horse and 760 cubic inches. And mine is 220 horse at 670 cubic inches. So I'm 15 horsepower less and 90 cubic inches less. But, you know, I, I, I do well with it. Um, the airplane has the same wingspan as the J1 standard from World War One. It's kind of cool. You Which know? is pretty significant, too. The, I mean, the size of it. And that's when you think about it, even just from modern aircraft standards. So you're essentially, you're, you're five people in a big airframe, and you've only got 220 horsepower. So it's pretty impressive, really, what it can do, uh, especially when you consider there's a fair amount of drag being created by all of that, uh, you know, not so streamlined airframe. Uh, so it's pretty impressive to me. It's well, you you know, when you learn how to fly tailwheel and vintage airplanes, you have to learn how to fly the airplane. And you know, flying a new standard, I don't care if it's with a right or my continental, but you better learn how to fly the airplane, fly the wing. You know, you got to fly the wing of the airplane, and that's kind of what the standard it flies so well. But when it lifts off, it kind of just levitates, and I see. but you have to let it levitate, you can't yeah, make I see. It off the ground. I see, and uh. You know, it's there isn't anything streamlined about it. <laughs> it has a lot of drag, and um, uh -huh. the top wing is pretty much 46 feet. Um, the bottom wing is, I think, 33 feet. And it's it looks like a carnival airplane. That's yeah. why it's a flying circus. It has, you know, round wingtips. Um, the, the entire wing is all wood. It's a beautiful wing. And then another thing that's very unique about this airplane, the fuselage is aluminum L-Track. And, you know, which aluminum's lighter. Yeah. And another thing, you know, like the Travel Air and a lot of the other aircraft, they were still tubing. So you had to weld the tubing together. Uh -huh. With the standard, there's hardly any welding done. So their logic was, is, you know, if you're barnstorming, you know, a lot of barnstormers were in fields, rough fields. If you tore up an airplane, well, you could just get more aluminum L-Track. You I can see. bolt it together or rivet it together. Uh huh. Well, throw a bed sheet over it, put some dope on it, and you could fly it out of there. Uh huh. Welders, yeah. anything required. So it's it's a very neat, you know, structured airplane, and how it's it all fits. It's like a big erector set, to be honest with you. Yeah, I you know I have not seen the the fuselage. Uh, I did some research and and realized that it was built this way. But I uh, I want to do some research and find some images and uh, to better understand that because that's that's always fascinating to me the way that uh, different structures are used. And one thing that's important for people, m many people already know this, but you know, is we were moving from the twenties and towards the thirties and such. There was a real movement away from wood. Uh, in certain aspects of aircraft use and and not that wood is an inferior material by any means because we still build airplanes out of wood today at least many home builds are built that way and they can be fantastic but wood is um, more dependent upon good care and oftentimes if the airplanes are sitting outside in the weather uh, in the rain and such, um, the wood becomes more of an issue. So having these really durable metals, whether it be steel or the aluminum-based um, fuselages, certainly I could see that adding a lot to the durability and the longevity of the airplanes. Yeah, and you know nowadays 
you know, we, we definitely take care of these airplanes a lot differently um, there because there's not a lot, all of them are collectors in, in some sense. And, you know, I, I own my own grass strip and I build a building and no, I have a, a Ronca champ also. So I, I had this building built and it's a huge hangar. Well, this big hangar I, I had built, I had a champ and that's all I had. But when I <laughs> built this building, I built it big enough because I had dreams to own a new standard. I see. And you have to build, this thing will not fit in a normal T hanger. I can so, imagine. Yes. I have a 14 foot tall door and a 50 foot wide door. I see. And, um, uh, that is, you know, a bifold door wasn't going to work unless I built my building about two feet taller. Uh huh. And, you know, so I did a lot of planning and when I decided to build a hanger, my goal was to build a hanger to fit a new standard in it. <laughs> uh huh. Well, and by golly, it looks like that all came together for you, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, this airplane does set outside maybe two or three days a year when we go barnstorm, sure. you know, away from home, uh -huh. but it will never, it never sees bad weather per se. It's, yeah. it can't well, afford it. Yeah, that's great for sure because that not only, I mean that that creates a an airplane that is going to be uh, lasting an awful lot longer. And of course, if you're doing rides, you just want an airplane to be in the best condition it can be in. So um, definitely. Now here's an interesting thing. Now, I, and I've been around aviation since I was just a little kid, and and I'm getting up there in age now. I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm not uh, as young as I once was, but I learned a term that's related to the new standard that I had never heard in my entire aviation life, and that is the sesquiplane term. And yep. I was fascinated when I. Um, uh, because I had to look it up to think, well, what the heck? And and I can see how it sort of fits with the whole sesquicentennial that we had in America when we were 150 years old. And the whole point being that it's like a wing and a half. So it's basically saying that the top wing, um, which would could relate to the span, but uh, the, as the definition I've seen, it actually relates ultimately to the wing area. But usually the, the second wing, which is almost always the lower wing in this case, is quite a bit smaller than the top wing. Yeah, and that's, you know, I would have said that, but I have a hard time pronouncing it. So the sesqu <laughs> wing is definitely, you know, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a smaller wing than the top wing or the other wing. And, you know, when I've looked at it, I believe it says like half. So it's yeah. like half the area. And yeah. it may be that, but, you know, if you look yeah. at like Newport 17s, those World War One airplanes kind of yeah. had those type of wings, but sure. it's very noticeable with a new standard just because the top wing is just enormous compared yeah. to the bottom. Right. Uh, Cause like but it, on, it on the a, Newport, or I'm sorry, I was just going to say on the Newport, it's, it's predominantly through a really narrow cord that they get the little wing. And on the standard, you've actually got a lot shorter span on that lower wing. Exactly. And it makes it look cool in the air. I mean, it's just, it is just one cool machine with that big, you know, the top wing is just gigantic. And then you got this almost like this little dinky wing, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, on the bottom. Yeah. So. 
Really unique look. Well, so then let's talk a little bit about the flying of something like this. Because when I've seen, um, I, I've been around a few of the ride operations and, and seen the you know new standards taking rides. And because it's a sizable airplane and and such, I, I've just often wondered, well, what does it fly like, and what is it like in a crosswind? Well, you know, it it flies really well, uh, Ted. Ted Davis, we, he jokes around. He's like, you can't tell people how well it flies. So when people ask how it flies, you say, man, this thing flies like a beast. It's the hardest thing. That's why there's only eight <laughs> left. You know? <laughs> it takes a lot of skill. Uh -huh. But it, there is some real tricky things about flying it uh, with the rudder pedals and the brakes. Um, okay. So I had, in the cockpit, I have four pedals, like four, like full-size pedals that are hanging so you got the rudder on the outside and you have these brakes in the inside and then the tail wheel is just a lockable you know tail wheel it's not really steerable or anything like that so when you take off you you make sure the tail wheel's locked and you know once you're in the air the airplane flies really well i would say it flies you know like a champ something like yeah. that okay. um but handling on the ground, you have to use a lot of brakes. It, mm. it, it's very brake dependent. Um, you know, I, on a real heavy crosswind, you know, I was flying at an event yesterday. Every time I go to this airport is a direct crosswind. Mm. It was probably a good 15 knots. And, you know, I had to fly all day. I flew almost 80 people. Wow. But you, once you learn the airplane and you make sure you keep the wings down, you definitely make sure you do the right correction with the ailerons because you, this big wing, you know, you let wind get under that wing. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is when you're going to end up losing it. Sure. But once you get it down on the ground, heavy crosswinds, I, I usually will land the airplane. I see. And I will land it, get the tail down on the ground, and then I'll start getting on the brakes. And the problem is if you start slowing down and you have to use full deflection on the, on the rudder, it's hard to get your foot off the rudder pedals and get to the brakes because the brake will be possibly four or five inches away from your rudder pedals and you don't want to take that rudder out. Yeah. So it, it just takes some practice and some learning and, you know, a couple, you know, lock on the brakes up here, you know, here and there to learn. <laughs> like yeah, I shouldn't I have done that. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, you know, that Super Cub that I just restored has heel brakes on it, and I learned in a Satabria with heel brakes, so I actually like them, and I know a lot of pilots who have not experienced them do not like them, because it can be a little bit of a gymnastic event trying to keep your foot on the rudder pedal and apply brake, but this is taking it to a whole new level, though, when you have a completely separate pedal, and, and you, you essentially, to some extent, you do have to relinquish control of the rudder to get to that break then is that really what it amounts to yes yeah, yeah. you do huh. that's interesting i was yeah, flying I... sorry I, I was flying at ohio state airport one day it was 25 knot winds and i tell you it, it was exactly that i mean you're like full rudder deflection and then you're you got to jump off of there and get on the brake and mm -hmm. you know to, to keep the airplane from weather veining and, and things yeah. like that well, and especially with a right operation like this, uh, you're you're not as uh, 
you're not getting to choose your weather conditions very well. Obviously, there's going to be a limit, and you say we can't do it, but, but you're also going to be running up to the limit a lot of times just because of a given day and such. So what an interesting challenge there. And I'm imagining, though, it's like anything. It's, it's a lot like the airlines in that you, know, you develop the skills, and, and you, you just know what you're doing, and, uh, and you use caution, and you do a good job, ultimately. So, Yeah, you try not to tear up anything. And, you know, I, there's a couple events where I've stopped flying. I mean, I, that's one thing I think, you know, I do fly the airplane a lot. I, you know, honestly, I've, I've flown like 1,500 people, over 1,500 people last year. Wow. Well, but being even in the, the career aspect of learning kind of your limits that's how I've been able to progress with this airplane is like, okay, it's too bumpy. It's too much gust. You know, I'm stopping. So mm -hmm. I, I've been to some big shows where honestly I'm backed up two and a half hours and I have to just stop say, sure. you know, and how I, I judge it. If it's not fun for me, it's not going to be fun for you. Yeah, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense for sure. And, and that's where, <clears throat> um, Wisdom and experience uh, certainly come into play there, and in being able to make that call. And uh, but I can see that it's uh, just all the more a challenge. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I actually um, I I knew uh, Chuck Lamaster owned a Ford Trimotor, and I used to do the rides up at Oshkosh and and uh, over at Dayton. And uh, in fact, one year I got to ride. Well, they had the Ford Trimotor one year, and then he had sold the Ford and had the Bushmaster 2000, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, that was the modern Ford Trimotor that was built in the 50s. They only built two of them and uh, tried to market the airplane again. And so he had one of those and restored it and was doing rides. So anyway, I, I had a little bit of that experience of what it's like when you're trying to uh, you know, run essentially a little airline because uh, that's what it is. There's just really short flights and they're <laughs> coming back to the same airport. But you have a lot of those same challenges uh, that are weather and, and can be maintenance related as well. So anyway, it's real interesting though. And a uh, big challenge I can see, and especially it's just fascinating to understand how the the uh, rudder pedals are set up, and uh, it's, uh, it sounds in a little intimidating to me. <laughs> well, the, it is, you know, until you, you do it. And, you know, the, I, when I bought it, I bought it from a, a gentleman named Mike Hart, who he bought it. It was a crop duster in Cleveland, Ohio. And, and he flew it out to the Boston area to where he had it for many years given rides. But, you know, when I bought it, you know, he talked to me. He's like, you know, just don't get behind the power curve. Yeah. And things like that and what that means is you don't get behind the airplane and yeah. and that's where you i was kind of explaining like you have to learn the airplane that's when you go out and fly it by yourself and you start playing with it and trying to understand it but that's that's kind of what i do with all my airplanes you start feeling it you don't mm -hmm. you don't fly off of numbers all the time you fly by feel see that the pants stick and rudder and that is one thing this airplane is very comfortable in in the cockpit it's huge airplane and you know i'm kind of you know five seven so i can sit down in there and the windscreen keeps the the wind from beating on me so bad uh-huh and you know it all the controls are like humongous compared to my traveler the throttle the mixture the the stick and the rudder pedals are just they're like 747 size. And then <laughs> it's, uh, 
you know, but it's a very comfortable airplane. And I tell you, I'm, I'm really glad I have this airplane. It, it flies so well. You can fly a lot of people and getting back to the economical as, aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I can fly four people at a time. Yeah. That's as if you've got the audience for it, boy, that's got to be great because because uh, ultimately, uh, obviously, having having these airplanes, maintaining them and such is is an expensive um, project. And so it's great that there's this uh, economic uh, avenue with multiple seats, with both airplanes then to to generate enough revenue to make it both profitable for you for all your time and effort, but also to make sure that the airplanes can be continually cared for. Yeah, and it's. You know, it, people don't understand it. It is like a new standard. It's twice as expensive as my house. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, just trying to buy something like that and then sure. take care of it. You know, an oh. engine, you know, is thirty thousand, thirty-five thousand dollars. So it's it's always you have to have a some money in the piggy bank, for, you know, in case a bad day comes up and sure. insurance and another thing about a, a ride business. And I tell people I'm a modern day barnstormer. And in my opinion, I mean, there's some older barnstormers out there, but I am, in my opinion, a master at marketing. And that is where I do very well is that I've learned the social media aspect of it. And it's really helped me uh, Uh grow the business. You know, back in the 20s and 30s, they had uh promoters that would go out two or three weeks in advance and put flyers up and talk to the news media and things like that to get the town townspeople excited about it well i can do that through a computer and Uh it really it's a lot of work you know because i do everything it's i do all the marketing i build the website and i try to i'm not a website designer or anything but i'm trying to learn all this stuff and then sure you go and try and practice you know different things putting some road signs out here or contact the radio station and and things like that so Uh it all costs money (laughs) yeah for sure but it does sound like with the the volume that you mentioned um that of passengers that you flew just last year that's very impressive though that uh, obviously you've got a system that's working and um, that's just that's fantastic because uh, it's it is exposing people to uh, a aspect of aviation that even with this modern generation they maybe don't even know that it did exist where if you go back 40 or 50 years ago well everybody knew that kind of flying existed at one point in time but even this younger generation it's they're so far beyond that that uh, that's not a history that they may know anything about so it's just great that this is a way for people to get exposed to that and uh, at least educate them and hopefully they're actually you know going for a ride with you and experiencing that and then I'm sure there's a small percentage of that that uh, of those folks that are moved by it you know and they can't shake it they can't run away from it and they eventually wind up you know being drawn into aviation because of it yeah that's that's what we all hope and you know I I hope to you know actually just try to grow aviation and general aviation in general and you know I, I do a lot of outreach stuff with kids and schools and like i said my barnstorming carnival event you know i I kind of fund most of that event myself along with the city of springfield they they support me but you know i i don't go out and and ask a lot of people for assistance and money but you know i have clowns and bounce houses but we do 
rocket building and we have gliders for these kids. They get to build them and it's all, you know, and so parents can bring their kids there and not have $5 on them and they still can come and have fun. And then all the barnstormers that come in, uh, you know, my very close friends, normally I can get 70 airplanes there. But some of the very you know close barnstormers, they all open up their airplanes. They let the kids and their families set in these walkos and holes and champs and cubs. Uh-huh. So it's very hands-on type of event, and um, it it's uh it's really the outreach. That's that is really why I continue to do it. I'm on my sixth year of hosting this event. That's and great. Yeah. Well. So- and- <laughs> When is it? Uh, it's July 13th and 14th. Um, we always do it about a week before Oshkosh. Okay. And the reason is, is that the barnstormers, um, you know, it's, if you ever watch the video called barnstorming, Andrew King, Andrew's a good friend of mine. He flies my airplanes for me when I need help. But Andrew started this thing 20 years ago, him and Frank Pavliga. And we go out to Indiana and we visit a family out there and spend the night. And this family has eight kids. It's a dairy farm. And we stay the night and we land out in their hay field. We have a humongous barbecue. And it's just like a, this big family of friends that fly into this family's house. And then we leave. And next thing is Broadhead, which is the Pete and Pole fly in. Pete and Pole uh-huh. and in. And then Oshkosh starts. So uh-huh. all these airplanes start migrating up to gosh gosh or to broadhead sure yeah well that's uh that sounds like a, a good idea to t- time all those things together and uh what a what an exciting um, month basically of or two weeks period time there with so many uh, great uh, vintage aviation experiences yeah i mean a lot of peaton poles show up you know some will show up at my event but they start heading out but you know when you're in a peaton pole air camper and you have a tent and a and a duffel bag of clothes those clothes get a little ripe after about a week <laughs> actually probably after about three or four days yeah and, uh, kind of funny seeing the guys with the peat poles what they're doing by the end of the week <laughs> well you know and it's funny you say that because i was hoping that when we recorded this that i would be able to say that i had just flown from california to indiana in a little baby ace a home-built baby ace airplane which is a lot like a peat and pole it's just kind of similar yeah. and uh, i did start on the trip um uh i don't know when that was a week ago or so and uh, i only got the first leg in when i developed an oil leak with the airplane and had to turn around and go back and uh, so i didn't get to to do that but the first night i actually i slept on the ramp right next to the airplane uh in uh, auburn california and uh, so I was anticipating I was going to have very much that experience, probably a very ripe experience uh, by the time I would have reached Indiana. But uh, as it turned out, it just didn't work out. Uh, I was headed out, just starting to head out over the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, early in the morning before the sun came up. And uh, the uh, the engine developed a little uh, leak. And uh, it was a, actually a fairly substantial leak, but not one that was actually threatening the running of the engine and uh, so anyway <clears throat> but the one thing I was going to say about that was that um, I think the my I got five hours in that baby ace um, a week and a half ago 
And um, that was the first time that I can remember ever flying uh, in an open cockpit airplane by myself. Now, I have to clarify that because I was also raised around home-built breezy airplanes, which have no cockpit around you. You know, you sit completely in the front of the airplane, and I have a lot of time doing that. Um, but, but it's kind of a different experience, and I really enjoyed the open cockpit experience. And, of course, you've got that with both of your airplanes. Yeah, it's... I'm telling you, it's when Andrew's here, we go to some big events. I'll take both biplanes. It, I feel like the Gates Flying Circus. We're in formation, flying across, you know, to Indiana or something. And, you know, we can give hand signals to each other. It's just like, <laughs> sure. man, it's, it, it, you have to pinch yourself. And uh-huh. you got the wind blowing, the sun's coming down. We're going around you know thunderstorms or something it's the craziest funnest experience it's true americana and i'm so blessed to be able to do it and share it but man you're you're exactly right it's when you're sitting there and you got the sun in your face and you're looking out and you're in this airplane by yourself you it, it, to me it's just like i'm at, i'm in my element so yeah, yeah. and well, i <laughs> it's an experience like nothing else. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, even motorcycles, while they're great, it's there's just a a whole other level to flying. Let's say an open cockpit airplane. Um, it's just, it's an amazing experience, and uh, I'm really appreciative of the fact that your operation is out there sharing that with people, even if it's if it's not people that are going to have any ongoing interest it's just that experience alone for them it's it's something they would never forget and um, I'm just sure that they enjoy it immensely and so I'm really thankful that you're um, living on uh, carrying on the uh, barnstorming aspect of of aviation it's just really great well I appreciate it and it's it's just been a lovely experience and I'm I'm grateful for the customers and the people that come and take the rides and my friends that support me and help me, you know, without support and help, I wouldn't be able to have the business that I have and, you know, have the cool airplanes. I mean, it's one thing that's really cool is the company I work for, they decided to have a fly-in, which, you know, I work for a company with 2,400 pilots. I see. They decided to let, the employees, the pilots that own their own airplanes fly in to the headquarters. Hmm. How many cool, you know, companies do something that cool? Yeah, that's but very cool. I, I said, I got to go. I mean, I can't miss that. So <laughs> another friend that flies my travel air, he took the travel air, and then I took the standard in. Uh-huh. And you know, we're both dressed up as, as <laughs> Gates Flying Circus, or I'm Mr. Uh-huh. is what my name is. But, you know... I, and, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with bonanzas and, you know, an RV. Sure. I, you know, I want an RV, you know, so badly, but <laughs> you pull up on a ramp like that. Yeah. Uh, people just look at you and say, what is this? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and, and that is part of the experience. I'll have to admit that um, I'm. I because I was raised around um, the breezy airplanes, and then we had a Wilga for a while, which is a very unusual airplane. So I really like unusual airplanes because they do attract attention, 
and it it doesn't have to be a pure show off kind of thing, but it's just fun to be part of something unique. And yeah, you get that I'm sure in a really big way, especially with the standard because it's such a big airplane and and so pretty that uh, that's just got to be a a lot of fun to see the enthusiasm uh, and response that you get from people when you show up somewhere. Yeah, it it is. It's I had the FAA guys come to me and they have no clue what it is. But, you know, and they question, they're like, this must be an alterated, you know, alteration <laughs> on it to put four people in it. I'm like, no, this is the way they're made, you know. And That's right. <laughs> because they're used to modern jets and sure. modern airplanes and yeah. they've never seen anything like this. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, now, so here, we'll go back to this, give you a choice thing. So the Travel Air is sitting on the ramp, and the Standard is sitting on the ramp, and you just get to choose which one. Is it the same choice every day, or does that would that change, you know, based on the situation, maybe, which one you well, choose? That's a loaded question there now, <laughs> because my business is is built off of Ace, my Travel Air. So Ace has a big heart, you know, and, yeah, uh, you know, when it goes to flying characteristics, the standard, really? but, you know, for the travel air, when it's on the ramp, people see that and they want to ride the travel air because the paint scheme, yeah. you know, it's painted up in the flying Aces air circus, actual paint scheme. I see. And I'm, I'm not kidding you. If you're a hundred yards away and that thing's sitting on a ramp, Ace is saying, you want to take a ride with me. That's what it says. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah, I can yeah. believe it. So, and well, that's I, great, though. <laughs> yep. So that's what I, I, I love my travel air. And, and uh, I don't fly it a lot anymore because when I go to a big show, you want to take the airplane that can fly the people. Sure. Well, and I imagine you can't trust the standard to very many people because it's a challenging airplane, I'm sure, for a variety of reasons, some of which we've already covered. So that makes sense for sure. But uh, anyway, well, that's that's great. They're they're beautiful airplanes. And uh, I, I just really love the way you're going about everything. And I think it's really cool that you're also a corporate pilot or flying the, the heavy metal, too. Um, it's just all makes for a great story and, uh, and it fits into what vintage aviation, uh, the magazine is going to be all about. Uh, one thing I definitely want to cover in many articles, uh, if the magazine is able to, to successfully launch and become something, uh, ongoing would be barnstorming, uh, that whole era understanding you know how it came to be in greater detail and the characters that were part of it and and then the reasons why it changed um, which it did change significantly for sure as uh, regulation came to play and so it's all a really interesting part of aviation history and I hope to be able to cover it in great detail but it's just awesome that you're uh, in uh, 2019 you're out there uh, living that life uh, pretty extensively and that's just really great so really appreciate all that you do and very much appreciate you being here for this uh, this podcast uh, and your uh, your point of view is fantastic and I just hope uh, hope and wish you all the best well, I really appreciate it, and I same here. I'm here to support you, and we definitely can use more people like you to produce magazines and articles to share the history. So you uh, just contact me anytime you need it. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, hopefully maybe we'll do this again sometime. So thanks again for coming. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
That interview was so much fun. It's always great to chat with another aviator with a real passion for vintage aviation. A big thank you goes out to Dewey for being the first guest here on the podcast and for his efforts to bring the fantastic world of vintage aviation to the people of today. For episode three, I'll have my old friend Chris Lehner here to talk about his replica of the Mechanics Illustrated Baby Ace Homebuilt from the 1950s. It's sure to be another great interview. And lastly, I want to say that I believe the best future we can build for aviation is one where we know as much as we can about the past and we use it to shape the future. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Aviation Podcast, and I hope you come back for more. 